The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. A week from today, I'll be wrapping up the first half of my 43-mile journey through the main streets and back roads of the 413 on the 14th annual March for the Food Bank. And NEPM is focusing on the issue of food secure insecurity all this week. Not security, the It's opposite. both, really. You want security, but it's you true. suffer from insecurity. Indeed. It's hunger is what it is. Is what it is. Later in the show, we'll hear about the pressure hunger puts on public health when we talk with Andrea Freeman, Policy Director of Public Health Institute of Western Massachusetts, and Marissa Ciparino, clinical nutritionist, navigator at Holyoke Medical Center. And we'll hear about an innovative one-stop shop for a bevy of health issues, including hunger, 413 Care is a new website. We'll talk with the architect behind the project, Francesca Bermudez. We'll get Man About Town, Mr. Universe's mini-review of the Bob Dylan concert in Springfield last night, and we'll actually talk about his area of expertise when we learn about the geology of Mars. But first... Wait, acoustic, acoustic Evening with Pat Benatar. Yes. I am mad I missed this show. It was very good. Excellent show. Yeah, show. Just him so I'm at the Mahewi Performing Arts Center. The acoustics in the lobby are fantastic, which is awesome for my terrible recorder. And what's your name? I'm Janice Martinson. I'm executive director of the Mahewi Performing Arts Center. And how long have you been here? I have been here six years, uh, about three and a half of them as executive director. Cool. Give me your full name. Uh, Michael Buth. I'm the associate general manager. Fantastic. So you've been here for 12 years? 12 years, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I grew up here in the Berkshires and uh, left for 10 years and then came back. And yeah, it's exciting to be back and be a part of kind of what the Mahewi is, kind of the, the anchor of downtown Great Barrington. One of the things that's unique about the Mahewi among um, cultural centers in the Berkshires is that it was actually built as a cultural center, not as someone's home or retreat or estate. Um, and it was built by business people. So it has deep roots in being very town-centered as well as world-class. So in its first year, it, everything ranged from local performers to John Philip Sousa. And it was pretty much like a vaudeville playhouse where, you know, we have a train track right up the road here and, you know, Different companies would come in, they'd get off the train, they'd roll in with all their stuff, do a show, and they'd exit. Um, so, so when the theater was built, um, of course it was built with that in mind. So the, the spaces outside of the theater we, were really limited. The lobby, as you can see, is really tight, um, so it's pretty small. But again, people were coming off the train, going right in the theater, doing a show, and then, and then they were out the door and it was on to the next one. So. Um, yeah. There is something really beautiful about that, though. Having a smaller lobby means that people can't get lost as, as easily. Like, right. there's very few places for people to end up where they're not necessarily supposed to be, says someone who also used to work in theaters and performance spaces. There's an intimacy to this space that you're going to see friends here, and you're going to be recognized here. You can't come in and out anonymously. So that's one of the hallmarks, I think, of who we are and what we do. And another thing to note is that this was built at a time before cars. People came on the train or they came by, you know, horse and buggy, and there was a population of about 6,000 people in the town, and they built a 1,000-seat theater. So that tells you how central this was to cultural life in the southern Berkshires. I'm very proud of how our theater looks. It's uh, been restored actually to the 1930s look when they... Uh, 
went through the process with the historic commission of the state. That was the decision that was made. And um, it's elegant and warm and intimate at the same time, uh, which I think is sort of unique among historic theaters. A lot of them are much more jazzy, a lot bigger. Um, this one feels cozy and also like you're doing something really special when you come out for a night at the Mahaley. Really classic looking, especially with all of the ornamentation. This is beautiful. And as Janice mentioned, the, the restoration, the first restoration took place in the early uh, 1930s. So they actually did a really great job choosing the, the, the scheme of that time before that the theater was uh, some really interesting green colors. Uh, oh, so the oh walls no. were all very green. Um, <laughs> so stuff wasn't as pretty, so they made the right choice. In terms of just like safety and building code things, how has that been for maintaining the building and its aesthetics? You know, they used to build things in a really solid way. So it's a great building in terms of safety and all of that. We're completely up to code. And even beyond, we've recently installed electric door openers and things like that. So we're constantly looking at how we can make the space more welcoming and more comfortable for people. And it is expensive to maintain a building of this size and this history and this level of detail and elegance. Uh, so we're constantly fundraising for that. We're in the middle of trying to raise about a half a million dollars just to redo sort of the upper exterior of the building. We have uh, slates, slate tiles on the roof that are 120 years old, which is pretty good. But after 120 years, they're getting thin and worn out and starting <laughs> to fall off. So, you know, we're, we're trying to do the next 120 years. You're right. That is an ongoing process, keeping both the theatrical systems, which always have to be state-of-the-art, up-to-date, uh, efficient, and then also the physical space and then the comfort of the patrons. We have a running list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come up on stage and see it. Yes, I want to come up on stage. Performers love to come here. Uh, partly because we take good care of them, and partly because it's such an intimate house that um, we have great acoustics, and they can see and hear the audience. Even when someone's all the way at the back, they're getting that feedback from the audience. And audience members are sometimes surprised. They think they've said something kind of quietly. And the, the performer will respond from the stage. Um, so it's a very, very much a, an experience where the audience and the performers are really closely linked during the show. What gets shown here? What do you bring to the space? So we bring a little bit of everything. So when the theater uh, got its first kind of restoration once talkie films came in, the vaudeville stuff kind of went away, just like everywhere else in the nation. That went away and movies came in. So this was really a movie house straight up from the 30s all the way through to when Mahewi uh, took ownership. So um, we still hold that tradition. Um, we've got our full-size uh, movie screen. Um, we have a DCP uh, projector. So we still stick with showing some classic movies and doing classic movies. But our bigger mission and brand is bringing world-class entertainment. And we do a little bit of everything. Jazz, blues, rock. Um, we do plays, we do dance, so um, really we do a little bit of everything. You say when Mahewi took over, so when did that transition happen? How did that transition happen? Uh, there are layers of history, of course, for a theater this old. Um, it was privately owned for a while, uh, then was 
purchased by a corporation. It was almost torn down to make a parking lot in the 1980s. And a group of local citizens rapidly worked to get a historic overlay district placed uh, here and in other parts of the town. And that protected the theater. And then it was purchased by an opera company in the early 2000s. The downturn, the economic downturn happened and basically pulled the rug out from under that company. And happily, one of the members of the company was our founder, who said, I'm not going to let this building go down. And uh, she formed in 2003, in a really difficult, challenging time economically, a nonprofit to turn the whole building into a performing arts center. That group raised nine, nine and a half million dollars for the restoration. They brought in one of the best theatrical restoration architects in the country. He did a lot of the historic restoration on Broadway. They brought it back to where it had been. Before that, we hear stories about people coming to the movies and bringing blankets and umbrellas because they didn't know what would be, you know, if it would be snow or rain coming down through the roof. It was in really, really rough shape. They gave a tremendous gift to the town in bringing it back and a beautiful experience for everybody who walks in here. We still classify ourselves as as the as a community theater. This means a lot to folks that grew up in, within the community. We have folks who came here as kids to watch movies, like you said, with their blankets and, and, and everything else. And then now they walk into the building and they see this beautiful restored space that they remember coming to with their, you know, and then they bring their kids and they say, this is where I saw Jaws or this is where I saw E.T. So it's, it's really fun to hear the stories and to watch people come in, you know, that grew up in this area or have left and came back. So, so this summer, uh, New York Theater Workshop came and ran their Mind the Gap program, which was a week-long workshop and intensive collaborative theater-making process with seniors and teens, and uh, they put on a show at the end of a week. So there are all kinds of ways that the community shows up on our stage. The colors in here are really lovely. It's like mauve and beige and just warm, and the lighting is really impressive. You do programming year-round, which is really awesome and not something I always see except in larger theaters. Can you talk about like trying to bring things, especially as we go into the darker, snowier, harder to travel months, but bringing shows here in what's often considered the off season? It definitely affects what we can bring the t- during what time of year. Audiences change, like who's in town is different in the summer than it is in the ski season than it is during the fall. The dead of winter is really when we all kind of hunker down, um, but people want to get out. And so a lot of times we're putting things on the screen during January and February, which is one of the nice things about the versatility of our space. Um, and we have had success bringing in sometimes less headliner shows, more intimate, high quality jazz dance, some things like that in the in the darker months. So, But we had two sold out shows in March and April of last year. So um, there's never a time when it's really all that quiet at the Mahewi. <laughs> There's always something going on. Yeah, we do. We do, you know, anywhere between 130 and 140 events a year. So and and we definitely stay busy. You know, summer months are great and they're busy, but it's really nice being in a space that um, in an area that there's not a lot of places that offer year round entertainment. So we kind of fill that gap. Like Jana said, it's a little bit of everything at different price points. and, And we just kind of keep the schedule rolling. The other thing about having the flexibility of programming that we do is it also allows us to have a flexibility of price point. And we're very committed to making sure that everybody can get here for something. Uh, and whether that's uh, providing free tickets for EBT cardholders through the 
uh, Connect to Culture mm -hmm. program that uh, Mass Cultural Council runs, or youth discounts, or just plain an $8 movie ticket. Um, we're trying to make sure that pretty much everybody can get in here for something. And even for our live shows, we make sure there's always a segment of seats that are in a more affordable range than those tickets that are way at the top of the price range. Here at the Mahewi Performing Arts Center in Great Barrington, and we're going downstairs. Oh, wow, this yeah. is beautiful. So this this space originally, um, when the theater was built, really wasn't here. There, You know, you would come down these stairs and there was just small bathrooms. Um, and this is where most of the bathrooms lived. Again, this, when the theater was built, was a vaudeville playhouse. There was no intermissions, there was no anything. So when people came in, they watched an hour show, they left. Bathrooms weren't needed. <laughs> Times are different. Times are different. Um, now people could hold their water. Hold their water, <laughs> if they had water. Um, so, um, so yeah, so when, when uh, the restoration happened, this whole space was finished. This really wasn't here before. So um, we've got a big promenade space that we use for, you know, sometimes for different meet and greets. Um, our main concessions area is down here. Um, we've got full service restrooms. And then we just have pictures and history of the theater itself. So um, we like to celebrate the history of the theater. A lot of people come down with families and they, they look at all the pictures and, and see how far the theater's come. At that end of the hallway, we have a photo that was taken on opening night, 1905. And then exactly 100 years later, at this end of the hallway, we have a photo that was taken on reopening night, 2005. Oh, so cool. So it's really, it is fun to see. And we have people who still can look at the opening night photo from 1905 and find relatives in that photo. So there's this continuity from one end of the hallway to the other. On the opening night program, there are businesses that still exist in town, and so you just see that, uh, as well as down here we have a photo from, would be the 19, late 1920s, when they first started showing movies, but before the marquee went up. So people think of the marquee as so iconically Mahewi, and it is, but they don't realize it actually wasn't added until 1930. Tell me about the name Mahewi. So it's a Mexican word. Uh, we've heard different translations, and as I understand it, those words can be interpreted differently in different contexts. The most consistently quoted is it means place downstream, and we are, you know, down the Housatonic River, so that makes sense, um, and also sacred gathering space. And uh, so we're proud to honor that, uh, and recognize that the Stockbridge Muncie people were on this land originally, and they're now located in Wisconsin, but continually building bridges back here and vice versa. We have hosted for the last couple of years celebration, I guess is the right word for it, uh, Alliance for a Viable Future is a non local uh, nonprofit that's about uh, main maintaining our environment through traditional knowledge. They've been bringing people back. They just brought N. Carlos Nakai, who was one of the most well-recognized Native American flutists to play on our stage just a month ago. While I was doing some research, I noticed that after the George Floyd murder, you had a report done on equity in the arts. And it's publicly available, which I think is pretty interesting. Like, what did that report change about your program, your staffing, how you interact with the greater community? We've been working on the issue of pay equity for years now. Um, so this has been an ongoing process of trying to make sure that, particularly for entry and uh, mid-level workers, that we're bringing that lowest threshold up. 
um, to a place where people can hopefully buy gas and groceries. Uh, we're continually looking at what we're paying, but also what are the benefits that go with that. So trying to recognize both the hard numbers of compensation, but also what are the human contexts of compensation? What are the things that people need to make their lives workable? And I will say on a personal level, I wasn't surprised by the numbers. The numbers proved what I think most of us who are leading arts organizations already know, which is there's, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. What hit me was, we asked quantitative as well as qualitative questions, and the qualitative questions were open-ended. And in most surveys, you don't get a lot of response to open-ended questions, sort of yes, no, blank, you know, that kind of thing. People wrote paragraphs in answer to these questions, and when you read them all together, it's very powerful to hear uh, on a narrative level and from so many voices, almost 200 people, what a hard time workers in cultural organizations are having. And that, I keep saying, is a, that's a generational shift. Um, it's taking a toll on people physically and emotionally in a way that I don't believe was true 25 years ago. Oh, you've even got the program from opening night yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot to maintain. Are, is this the only copy? Well, this is these are all these are all uh, copies of the original. So the original we obviously we do have somewhere in storage, but a lot of copies were made. Uh, this is uh, uh, Lola Jaffe, the original founder's uh, husband, who um, kind of curated this area of pictures and stuff. So he was in charge of kind of getting stuff together and and uh, kind of made some copies that we could put up so people could see original copies of uh, of uh, opening night. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It is really cool. Yeah. Interesting. Such a cool walk through the history of the building and the, the productions that have been here over the course of the years. Really fascinating, really gorgeous pictures, in addition to being in a really pretty space. So, yeah, our programming is, is really important to us and making sure it's diverse is it's very important. For giving us the chance to talk to you and by extension to your audience we look forward to seeing you back here oh, yeah. at the Mahewi and uh, your audience as well oh yeah no your lineup is real great i just have to make sure that it's maybe not snowing the next time and i can make better better travel arrangements <laughs> <laughs> thanks to janice martinson and michael buth of the Mahewi performing arts center for showing me around this week at the Mahewi, you can catch author and comedian samantha b so check their website for details on that Later in the show for NPM's Hunger Awareness Week and in the lead-up to next Monday and Tuesday's March for the Food Bank, we'll talk with Andrea Freeman and Francesca Bermudez from the Public Health Institute of Western Mass, as well as Marissa Chaparino, clinical nutritionist navigator at Holyoke Medical Center, about the impacts hunger has on health. Up next, Mr. Universe, as he shakes shakes to the planet Mars, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid's take on Mars quakes and on the Bob Dylan concert in Springfield last night. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Time for some more Kitchen Table Astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, at your kitchen table here in Amherst. Before we get into what we're going to talk about, which is we learned about the birth of the moon last week and how what birthed the moon is still lodged inside of the Earth's core, I want to talk about Bob Dylan at Springfield Symphony Hall last night. You were there. Your uh, thoughts on the Dylan show. Right. Uh, well... First of all, I mean, I should have said that I went to see a Nobel laureate yesterday. Oh, yeah, right. Right. And so, yeah, no, I think he's 80. He's still rocking. I mean, I've seen him a couple of times before. And I have to say, I mean, with my dear apologies to 
uh, Bobby D, uh, Bob Dylan, about, you know, I mean, you love the lyrics, the stuff that he has written. You just love it, right? But then in live concerts, they're oftentimes, especially in the last 15, 20 years, they, the words just get drowned out and it's very hard to hear about what he's saying. So, so I kind of miss the lyrics. Yeah, but his last album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, appropriate for an 80-year-old, by the way. <laughs> you know? And it's a ruckus album. I mean, I love it. Like, you know, the couple of like really nice blues songs on there. And so I really wanted to go and see, and he's also 80. I was like, you know, you never know. Could be your last chance. Right. So I, I, I did go, and it was packed. It was Springfield Symphony Hall. The first couple of songs, I have to admit, I was really wrestling with this idea that maybe it's all a big, long, practical joke that Dylan is playing. <laughs> on, it's gonna come out like, you know, posthumously published autobiography in, it, in which he says, I just made stuff up and made sounds and, <laughs> and people just loved it. Like, you know, the first couple of songs, it seemed like I couldn't even tell, even though I've listened to his last album also, I knew kind of what he might be singing and yet I couldn't identify the songs because of the way he was singing. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a long night. However, after I think three or four songs, the words also the got clearer. So I don't know if it was because deliberately the first three songs were like that, or maybe there were tweaks to the audio controls or he himself, but then it was actually really wonderful. And his band is actually really nice, but he played most of his songs were from his new album. And so if you are looking for big hits, like, you know, Tangled Up in Blue or other things, nope. Uh, I think one of the songs that he sang was uh, "You Gotta Serve Somebody." Other you than had to that, pull from the Christian album of all things. Uh, that, that was interesting, yeah. Uh, but it's again uh, with the band, it worked really well. But overall, it was a lot of fun. But he doesn't talk much. No, he, did he say, "Ladies and gentlemen, these are some of the finest musicians <laughs> yes, in the land"? Exactly. Every time I've seen Dylan, that's all he says to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, these are some of the finest musicians in the land. That's right, it. and and he was playing piano, and he was into it, like, you know, really standing up, and um, I was just waiting for him to put his leg up and sort of like, you know, really go after that, but it was a lot of fun. Well, Bob Dylan is uh, like a rolling stone, and so is Mars, which is like a <laughs> rolling stone orbiting in our solar system. Wow. Who's that's... older, Bob Dylan or Mars? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, so and, and one of the th things that we talk about Mars is that it doesn't have a magnetic field, but... Uh. Dylan certainly does. Yes, he, does. <laughs> he is magnetic. <laughs> uh, so uh, I wanted to, in some ways, uh, do a part two of the conversation from last week. But last week we talked about the formation of the moon and the body that hit the earth that created the moon four and a half billion years ago that was named Thea. And we talked about the fact that we now know that part of Thea is inside the earth because there are these big pieces. And the reason why we know that is because we can actually study the structure of the inside of the Earth through earthquakes and we can figure it out. So there is a recent paper that has come out that now also has modified our understanding of Mars's interior. And of course, we are interested in Mars because, as we mentioned, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field. It used to but now it doesn't, and that's a puzzle. So there is a lander over there. It was called the InSight Lander, an instrument that was there from 2018 to 2022. And it was there to measure Mars quakes. Because these kind of earthquakes or Mars quakes are really important 
because you can actually get information about what is inside the planet. It's like shaking up a present on Christmas morning. Uh, I think I can guess what's in here by the way this present sounds. Yeah, I, I mean, and to a certain degree, but, but this is amazing, right? I mean, I like, you know that if you say, okay, well, what's inside a planet? Well, you cannot dig through it. But scientists figured out, I think in the, early, in the 1920s and the early 20th century, that if you have an earthquake, if something shakes, so as you are talking about the Christmas present, the seismic waves, these waves are going to go through and depending upon what kind of material there is, the waves are going to speed up or slow down based upon those properties. Or, for example, in the case of the Earth, we discovered that Earth has a solid core, inner core is solid, and the waves are going to get reflected back. So you get this amazing information purely from the shaking of a planet. And so it was really crucial that what we figured out what is inside of Mars. On Earth, we have great, because there are all these earthquakes, and so you can actually figure out the interior, but we didn't know much about Mars. This InSight lander, that was designed to do that. And it detected many of Mars quakes, uh, and those are much smaller than uh, compared to the Earth, actually. They are relatively smaller. It detected those. And what we found from mapping those Mars quakes was that it looked like that it has a liquid core and it's a little bit bigger in size than expected. And that was a little bit surprising because it wasn't matching up uh, sort of like our expectations, our models of Mars because it was clashing with other things. Um, not to mention it also was suggesting that because its size was a little bigger, that there were a lot more lighter components mixed in and it was just not making much sense. Nevertheless, people go like, hey, well, that's what we got. Like, you know, we are getting a lot of information until September 18th, 2021. And so this is really cool. A meteoroid hit Mars on that day. And InSight, which is there to detect any kind of rumblings, basically, so normally it detects Mars quakes, but this meteorite actually hit a couple of thousand miles away. And that has dramatically altered our view of the interior of Mars. And it wasn't the only one on December 25th. Uh, there was another meteoroid that hit and that is providing us information because then it can map the seismic waves going through the interior of Mars. It hit Mars on Christmas, just like a Christmas present. You shake it and you can figure <laughs> out what's inside it. Thank you, meteorite. That's right. But but what they found was that that the core, the, the liquid core that I was talking about before, Mars does not have a solid core. It has a liquid core. And it turns out that it is a little bit smaller than expected. But instead, on top of that liquid core, there is a layer close to about 100 miles or so thick. There is a layer of molten magma. That is something that we don't have here on Earth at that level between the mantle and the liquid core. Earth doesn't have that, but on Mars, you have this different layer. And that, in some sense, solves the problem that there was before. Now it kind of gives us a sense of what is going on inside Mars. Is that why Mars lost its magnetic fields? Because of the way that its core is set up? And now this new insight from insight into the structure of Mars explains a little bit better why Mars might have lost its magnetic field? Well, we don't know, but that's a possibility. So a few months ago, all the papers were talking about this big mystery of why its core is a little bit bigger than expected and the challenges that come with that. And now, because of this analysis of this meteoroid that actually provided us with the structure of uh, the inside of Mars in a slightly different way, so suddenly we have different explanations. And so this 
current study, so this is sort of like, you know, hot off the research uh, stove or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> what they think is that this kind of layer of molten rock that has prevented the core from cooling down further. Perhaps this prevented the formation of a solid core, which would have created magnetic fields on Mars. So maybe that is the case, but here is a puzzle. We do know that Mars, long time ago, did have magnetic fields on it. So then why was there magnetic field then and how did it lose it? So there is a different type of puzzle that has come in and people are speculating on that. And one idea is that maybe it had larger moons. Right now its moons are pretty much smaller that may have helped with the magnetic fields, but not now. So now we are in a different set of questions. This is really cool for two reasons. One, you are seeing science in action. This is how you try to piece the puzzle together. And there are some things that you come to the, well, hey, we know more and more about the picture. We may have been wrong in this way, but we may be right in the other. And the power of good theories, the power of good understanding is that it doesn't just explain one thing, but it explains a lot more. But this question of what happened to Mars's magnetic field, there are no. I mean, that probably is already part of somebody's PhD thesis or it's going to be in the future because that's what you do on the PhD thesis, that you look for questions that have not been solved. It's a little bit boring if you work on things that have already been solved. But a lot more missions will be going to Mars and we will find out a lot more. And as an obligatory thing, I have to say, and of course it is related to whether there was life ever on Mars or not, but give some credit to Mars just as a planet itself. But sure enough, habitability, we don't know whether, whether there is a life on Mars uh, today or not, microbes or not. Nevertheless, why it's a deader planet than Earth? Well, these may be some of the reasons. And if you do get a present for Christmas or whatever holiday and you want to shake it, if somebody gets mad at you, just tell them you're doing science. I learned it from shaking Mars. And I hope there is no molten magma as a gift. Yeah, well, that would be fun. The floor is lava is a fun game. Well, that's true. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about what happens if you shake Uranus, but... <laughs> then you did. And, and then you did. <laughs> Up next, we are a week out from the 14th annual March for the Food Bank, and we'll talk hunger and public health with Francesca Bermudez, 413 Cares Program Coordinator, Andrea Freeman, Policy Director of Public Health Institute of Western Mass, and Marissa Ciparino, Clinical Nutritionist, a nutritionist a navigator, that's so hard to say all in one, at Holyoke Medical Center. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are a week away from the 14th annual March for the Food Bank, and in the lead-up to this strange and laborious charity event, NEPM is taking a deep look at hunger in the 413. Healthy food is fundamental to a healthy human existence, and joining us to talk about how hunger impacts our overall public health is Andrea Freeman, who is the policy director of the Public Health Institute of Western Mass, as well as Marissa Ciparino, clinical nutritionist navigator at Holyoke Medical Center. We're going to welcome into the conversation the person behind an awesome website that helps bring all this stuff together a little bit later, too, uh, Francesca Bermudez, also from the Public Health Institute of Western Mass. But for those who are not familiar with what the Public Health Institute is and does, Andrea, tell us what it is and does. 
Sure. Thanks for having us. Um, the Public Health Institute of Western Mass is a nonprofit organization. We've been around for about 25 years. We focus on building community coalitions. We focus on research and evaluation on community health issues, and we also do some public policy advocacy. So look forward to telling you more about that and how, how we've worked with uh, on food policy issues and worked with the Food Bank of Western Mass for many years. Yeah, tell us about your relationship with the Food Bank. Sure. So um, one of the um, areas is, um, you know, we've gone back to um, the GoFresh uh, mobile market that the Public Health Institute started back in 2011. Um, and that, you know, is a mobile market that goes all over Springfield and with, you know, many partners have, have been um, involved in that. And then back in 2021, um, we actually we transferred the you know the management of it over um, to Wellspring, but of course the food bank's been involved in that for long, and we partner with them on advocacy on everything from um, the cliff effect that they've been very active about involved getting rid of the cliff effect I should mm, say right, um, as well as transportation and closing the snap gap. We've talked a little bit on the show about the cliff effect. Uh, tell us, from your estimation, what the cliff effect is and what kind of advocacy you've been doing with the food bank to try to end the cliff effect. Yeah, so the good news is that um, with the help of the Food Bank of Western Mass in partnership with the um, uh, the Western Mass, um, or Springfield Works, the Western Mass Economic Development um, Council, uh, the legislation to start a pilot program was passed last summer by the legislature. And so there is a, a pilot that's going to be getting started shortly um, so that um, to, to try. So basically the cliff effect being that if um, when someone is receiving um, uh you know, receiving uh, government benefits, whether it be affordable housing or food or um, SNAP benefit food stamps. Um, when you start earning a little bit more money, you might be get a raise or a better job. And if you hit, hit this mysterious threshold, all of a sudden you lose all these benefits all at once, which you fall off a cliff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, not a guy named Cliff. No. No. I, did, I did date a Cliff. Though. Oh. <laughs> How was that? And what was the effect? No. Well, well, it, it exists at, at the at the opposite end, too, where, like, if you're at the bottom end of this already, like, you've gotten, you've already got this job, you're suddenly priced out of or, like, uneligible for a bunch of programs that, like, and missing that cutoff by maybe, like, not very much. Like $20. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really close. Yeah. So, you you exist on like the bottom end unable to get into those programs too exactly yeah and and so if you don't oh and if you don't earn enough to um you know you you don't earn enough to make up for those lost benefits of child care or you know again food um then you really are, you know, you're out of luck. But this this pilot project, which hopefully we think will work, it basically you you get compensated. You'll actually get money back to make up for what you would have lost, so that you're kind of you're made whole. And so there's going to be a pilot for a hundred people um, across the state. But it was an idea that was started in Springfield. It was started here. So, um, but if the food bank, you know, we were we we follow the lead of the food bank when Springfield works and just. You know, we're cheerleaders behind them. And it would create this glide path. And we'll see how it works after the pilot um, is underway. We're speaking with Andrea Freeman, the policy director of the Public Health Institute of Western Mass. One pilot that has been implemented and has been working 
I was lucky enough to kind of be part of the think tank to, to get it going uh, has to do with what's going on at Holyoke Medical Center. And joining us from Holyoke Medical Center is Marissa Ciparino, who's the clinical nutritionist navigator there. Flight of the Navigator. Uh, I love that movie. <laughs> Starring Pee Wee Herman's voice. Um, th- this, uh, there is a program that the food bank came up with that was started as a pilot through Holyoke Medical Center to help screen for food insecurity. Talk about your relationship to that program how and how it has been going since it was in initially adopted as a pilot. Yeah, so since the pilot concluded and we were able to show that screening helps our patients gain access to all things socially uh, social determinant of health related, we were able to then take some of these formalized screening tools and put them into our electronic medical record system. So yearly, our patients get asked a series of questions. Like a uh, short series. This yeah, isn't like a yeah, huge question. Yeah. What is it, three questions? Two. Two questions, Two. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the hunger vital sign. And it's, uh, are you, have you run out of food in, uh, I don't remember the time frame, is it? The, I think it's it, within the last month uh-huh. or so, or are you afraid that your funds are going to run out before the end of the month and you won't be able to, to get food? So when someone screens positive for that in the doctor's office, my team, which consists of me, the registered dietitian, we have uh, several nurse navigators, community health workers, and a social worker, are notified of that. And if they screen positive for other things like housing and um, asthma triggers in the home, we all can intervene. And my role is to bridge the gap between uh, the food insecurity they have and how it affects their ability to address and manage the chronic diseases that they suffer from. Are you literally prescribing food? Food as medicine is something that gets bandied about, something we talked about uh, we talk about frequently. I went to a mm-hmm. conference that the White House put on a, a year ago to talk about this. Is this being implemented in a major way in at least Holyoke Medical and in, in what your role is there? Yeah. So as a dietitian, I'm often considered the food police. Yeah. But uh, I find that I actually do the opposite. Mm-hmm. I'm helping people get more food into the home with the resources that they do have. And while sometimes that food may not be quote unquote, healthy or ideal, I work with them on how to balance out fresh food with some of the food that they receive from local pantries and from the food bank. Since your pilot was successful, have you been able, not that it's your job to teach how to run this program to other medical centers, but have you seen other medical centers be interested in this program and trying to implement it where they are as well? We are lucky in Western Massachusetts and Massachusetts as a whole because of our healthcare system and the design of an ACO. So a lot of our ACOs. What's an ACO? Accountable Care Organization. (laughs) Have you covered that on the? No, we have not not specifically. Maceo we've covered. Maceo Parker, but we that's did not. a little bit once in no. a while. I'm not going to be the best person to explain an ACO to you, but we are uh, a partnership of different healthcare facilities like uh, Holyoke Medical Center, uh, local rehab facilities that share a group of patients. And our job as a community is to keep them out of the hospital. 
So uh, there's funding associated with that, and then all your major hospitals are part of their own ACO. So uh, reminds me why we got on that topic. <laughs> we were wondering if I was wondering if other medical centers oh, in yeah. the area so, are looking to implement something similar. So because of the ACO model, Mass Health does require that we all work towards this common goal. So we're fortunate enough to be all part of the Hamden County Health Improvement Plan as a a community collaborative, Let's Move Hamden County 5210. And we're all working together on different projects to essentially achieve the same goal, whether it's housing, asthma, smoking, cessation, um, food insecurity. So, yes. Uh, well, what if yeah. there was a one-stop shop website where all of these <laughs> things could be addressed? Maybe we're going to find all about this from Master the person the segue, this whose man. idea this was, 413 Cares, in just a little bit. A reminder that our Hunger Awareness Week coverage, supported by Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Find more stories about hunger and learn more about the 14th Annual March for the Food Bank at nepm.org slash hunger. But up next, more with Amanda Fr- Andrea. Oh, my goodness. More with Andrea Freeman, Policy Director of Public Health Institute of Western Mass, and Marissa Chief. Barino, clinical nutritionist, navigator at Holyoke Medical Center. And we'll welcome to the conversation Francesca Bermudez, who we are told is the brains behind the idea called 413 Cares. And maybe a community call out to help find a missing dog. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Yes. My son dressed up as Weird Al on Saturday night. It was awesome. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Our Hunger Awareness Week coverage is supported by Ted and Barbara Hebert of Teddy Bear Pools and Spas. And we are talking with the Public Health Institute of Western Mass as well as Holyoke Medical Center. And from the Public Health Institute of Western Mass, Francesca Bermudez, who I am told by Andrea Freeman, the policy director there, is the person behind the idea of 413 Cares. Tell us what 413cares.org is and does. Yeah, so um, 413cares is a program, well, a resource database managed by the Public Health Institute of Western Mass. And it basically is a database of resources that have that are free or reduced cost. So we partner with Find Help, which is a national platform, and they're really the tech behind 413cares. So um, free, reduced cost services or programs are what's listed on through cares. So you can essentially search for a resource, um, the name of an organization or whatever it may be with your zip code and five, find things that are relevant to those two things to really bridge this gap of well, what's near me that can help me. So it's kind of amazing how well put together this hub is. It's really easy to navigate. There's a pile of information there that it would take you a lot longer to find on your own. So, like, thank you. I'm having fun navigating it right I'm I swear I'm paying attention <laughs> and not just looking at your site. Yeah, and the site has, like, food, housing, mental health, substance use, reentry resources, digital resources, mentoring. And we got an email, probably because we've been talking so much about hunger over the last couple of weeks, over the weekend, from a person who was like, I had a, trouble in my relationship and I'm living in my car and I'm having a hard time finding the resources I need. But in getting ready for this show today, I was like, hey, there's a, there is a hub called 413 Cares where literally all of the things that you have been asking about are in this place. So was this all your idea, Francesca, or where did this idea originally come from? I wish this was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was, um, you know, years in the making. So, you know, the idea be- 
by having a resource database really came out of when the Affordable Care Act came out, Obamacare. And, you know, healthcare shifted to looking at things that can address social determinants of health, like Marissa mentioned earlier. Um, so things such as food access, um, transportation, reentry resources, other things outside of healthcare that impact your health. And so this is where we're like, well, wouldn't it be great to have a database of yeah. where you can go? Um, and so this is, you know, the site is free to use, easy to use for both seekers. So, you know, anyone that wants to look for these resources. But if you are in an organization that's helping someone out, doing case management, um, there's also features and parts of the website that help for that, too. What's the feedback been from people who have used this? Have, have you been able to see the dots be connected for people that are accessing these services through this portal, 413cares.org? Yes, so we've, we have over 3,500 programs um, listed on 413cares. And up to now, we've had 95,000 searches done wow. on, oh. on 413cares. So, and food and housing are always the top search needs yeah. month to month. When I do the data analytics month to month, it's what what populates. And so um, some of our partners, we have community um, organizations that really rely on 413cares to do their outreach, do their, um, you know, navigate, help their patients or clients with, you know, their the needs that they have. But um, there are referral systems in place. There are a lot of things that the website features to help organizations. And so we've had um, organizations that do this. And an example is the food bank. Um, they were our first partnership and they currently use um, four and three cares their food navigation program exclusively uses four and three cares for re- referrals. Mm. So they're a really good testimonial on, <laughs> yeah. on the usage of that. And it shows you the multifaceted way the food bank works and why I think it's an important organization to support, why the march happens and will happen again on Monday and Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, but food, you, oh, know, no, no. you do one more before we have to, okay. before we're going to talk about this dog that I've mentioned. <laughs> Andrea, I'm, I'm curious, since you worked in public policy, are there areas of all policy is hard to change, but are there particular areas re- regarding like food insecurity that are particularly difficult to get on people's plates, to get changed? Well, you know, there are obviously keeping things, some things, um, getting things changed is indeed very challenging. But I want to, you know, just say like for 413 CARES, we, you know, had great support from the state legislature, and well, especially Western Mass delegation and um, Representative Finn and Senator Gomez were huge in helping that getting get that started. So that you know, was a big move forward. Um, we hope to be able to continue that. Um, but like, um, you know, um, the, you know, getting HIP, the Healthy Incentive Program, it's been a success along the way um, in terms of people being able to use their SNAP benefits and getting, more, basically, there's a financial incentive to use it at um, farmers markets and um food stands and stuff to get fresh vegetables. Um, But it's not in statute yet. Like you have to kind of, you know, beg and plead every budget year to get it. And so there's, you know, there's legislation right now um, to try to get it into statute. So it's a standard thing every year. Marissa Ciparino, who is the clinical nutritionist navigator at Holyoke Medical Center, what is the easiest healthy thing to get people who are not used to eating healthy things to eat to set them on a better path towards health? I would say fruits and vegetables, fresh yeah. or frozen, because they keep you full longer. So in turn, you don't necessarily have to eat as much food an hour or two later. Right. So you have it's hard when you struggle with food insecurity to have that foresight and to think ahead. But the reality is 
the food that looks like food it uh, is going to keep you full for a longer period of time and help you combat any medical issue you may have or, and prevent further ones from developing. That's Marista Ciparino, the clinical nutritionist navigator at Holyoke Medical Center. We're also been joined by Andrea Freeman and Francesca Bermudez from the Public Health Institute of Western Mass, where you can check out all their resources at 413cares.org. It's such a, a brilliant one-stop shop for all of these things. And to prove that the 413 cares, in the last few minutes, I want to mention a community endeavor that underway to bring a missing white great peer dog home. This morning, I got this call. Monty, Roy Rosenblatt calling. I emailed yesterday, but this thing has become a bigger story. Um, the whole community is coming out looking for this elderly dog that roamed off, and now the, all of Coleraine and parts of Shelburne, um, there there will be drones out there now looking for this dog, um, thermal sensing drones. So I think it's worth a story now, and our hearts are breaking. But if you go to the Facebook page, Bring Boris Home, You'll see everything that's going on. And a big thank you to Megan Jolie Pitt, who I believe is the person behind this Bring Boris Home Facebook page. He went missing a week ago today. They've got drones out there and things looking for this dog. (laughs) But an update from this morning on the Bring Boris Home Facebook group. Yesterday, there were over 50 volunteers out looking for our beautiful old friend Boris. My brother found paw prints and some dog poop on Nelson Road that had white fur in it. I'm pretty confident it belonged to Boris. And now they're taking this drone out to try to find him. There are a lot of terrible things that are out of control in this world, but maybe a small community of people who live in the same area code can all keep an eye out for this dog. So if you see this dog, please check out the Facebook page. Yeah, but if if you have any info, head over to Bring Boris Home. Um, tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, Hunger Awareness Week continues, and we'll hear about how hunger impacts the city of Springfield. We'll hear from Shannon Rudder from the MLK Family Services in Mason Square, one of the neighborhood's most active food pantries, and the starting point for the March for the Food Bank next Monday. And we'll hear from Liz O'Gilvie from the Springfield Food Policy Council about her tireless work towards bringing food justice to the city of home. She is the best. You can find more stories about hunger and learn more about the March for the Food Bank at nep.m.org slash hunger. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. We'll We'll see see you tomorrow tomorrow on on the Fabulous fabulous 413. 413.